Good evening, everyone. My name is Deborah Taylor. I'm coordinator of school and student services here at the Pratt Library. And it is my honor to welcome you and to welcome back to the Pratt Library, Mr. James McBride. His critically acclaimed works, particularly The Color of Water, Song Yet Sung, and his National Book Award winning The Good Lord Bird have had a special resonance with Baltimore readers. Song Yet Sung was a 2009 selection of the One Maryland One Book program, and many book clubs, including my own, have had lively discussions about The Good Lord Bird. We even took a group trip to Harper's Ferry. Mr. McBride's years as a musician and a music journalist have given him special insight and a unique perspective for his new book, Kill Him and Leave, Searching for James Brown and the American Soul. Reviews have already recognized his achievement with this title. The Associated Press said it sings and soars, and he writes sentences that swing, invents images that pop. Welcome, James McBride. Uh, You like me. You really like me. Thank you. Always nice to see so many white, I mean, nice people here in Baltimore. Actually, you know, it's funny because this is the most black people I think I've ever seen come to one of my readings. And like with initial book. Although when I, I must say when I come to Baltimore, there's quite a bit of African Americans that show up. Um, I guess black people in New York don't read. I, I don't know what the problem is. But then on the other hand, we don't live there anymore. We've been priced out, so. There it is. And it's coming to you soon. What do you think of that? I'm not going to. We're here to be happy. You know, we're not here to be depressed. We're going to talk about happy things today, by God, because you're going to buy my book. (laughs) All right, let me just begin by saying I went to Oberlin. I studied music at Oberlin, Ohio. And by the way, the first guy I ever met at Oberlin was a, a black guy from Baltimore. I met him at the bus station in Cleveland. His name was Clyde Woods, and uh, he had a duffel bag just like mine. And I said, are you, are you going to Oberlin? He said, yeah. I said, where are you from? Baltimore. Oh, okay. All right. Get in line. So, no, it was, he, was a, he, he ended up, he did very well. He died, but he did very well in this life. When I was at Oberlin, I, um, I studied uh, with a, a perf- they didn't have a jazz department per se at Oberlin when I was there. And so the black, you know, the kid, the, all the kids, white and black, who wanted to study jazz, there was only one guy who taught. His name was Wendell Logan. He was a black man. He was from the South. He was an extraordinarily gifted uh, composer. He grew up with, and, and studied with Cannibal Adderley and all these guys. But so if you want to learn tenor saxophone jazz at Oberlin, you went to Wendell. If you wanted to learn jazz trumpet, you went to Wendell. If you wanted to learn jazz history, African-American music history, that would be a course taught by Wendell. He taught everything in jazz. He, now Oberlin by, you know, has since built an incredibly fantastic jazz department. And Wendell did live long enough to see it uh, built. But during that time, he was treated <clears throat> pretty badly by the conservatory because they had the old guard. You know, they didn't like jazz. They thought jazz was, had some great trumpet players. They had a great trumpet player from, um, from this area named Chris, um, Chris. He teaches at Peabody now. He came to Oberlin for a while. and he, Chris Royale is his name. He was the nephew of Ernie Royale, who's a saxophone player. Um, but a lot of guys came to Oberlin and they went for a year or two and they said, I'm not, because they treated the jazz students so bad. 
that was then. That's gone now. They treat them great now. But in my time, if you were practicing in the in a practice room with your jazz group and like the fourth violinist from the orchestra walked in, you had to pack up your instruments and get out. So Wendell was teaching this advanced jazz course, jazz arranging, where you'd write your arrangements and then he would have the students play like a, you know, octet or something, four horn, and then at the end, he would take your, this was the midterm, he'd take your midterm, he'd look at it and he'd grade it and that was your midterm grade. So my best friend at the time, still is, is a white cat named Leander Bean, who was a classical pianist from New Hampshire. And so Leander got his midterm grade back, and he got an A. And then when I got my midterm grade back, I got a C. So I waited till the class empty. I waited till everybody left. And then I went up to the professor. I said, you know, Professor Logan, I said, you know, like Leander got an A, and I got a C, and, you know, I mean, you know, you know, C, me and you, uh, you giving me a C, it's our music. And, and Wendell looked at me like this, like, and he said, I gave Leander an A because he deserved it. And I gave you a C and you just got a D. He said, this music is about the truth. Don't ever come in here and talk to me like that. If you're not about the truth, you're not qualified to play this music. Goodbye. Oh, man, I just tore me up. Well, Wendell, when Wendell died, his granddaughter, who he raised, him and his wife both passed away. He died like um, 2010, and his wife died in 2014. And the granddaughter they raised is, is now my adopted daughter. That's how much I loved Wendell, and that's how much he trusted me. And so the first thing you see when you open this book if you're not about the truth, you're not qualified to play any kind of music. One of the things that he really taught me in addition to teaching me about the music was that the music teaches you the kind of humility you need to live a really good life. And that's really one of the things that our young people are missing because they don't study music in school. They learn music from the television and from the radio. They watch a little Wayne take a phone, take a bottle of wine and pour it onto a cell phone to show that the phone, you know, is waterproof. And then we wonder why our children can't compete with the French and the Chinese and the Russians and the Japanese because they're not, because they lost their history. The history's in the music. And there's nobody who typifies the history of the music better and whose life is a metaphor for American life than James Brown. I'm talking about a man who still even in death, who gave all of everything he had, his likeness, his music, his money, his publishing, his voice, everything, he donated it to set up a foundation to educate poor black and white children in South Carolina and Georgia. He did that in December 2006 when he died. Today, 10 years, more than 10 years after he died, not a single kid has received a single dime of that money. Because all of it is being eaten up by lawyers in South Carolina who are suing each other, dropped 48 lawsuits, 4,000 pages of testimony, 90 attorneys, most of whom never even knew James Brown. And they sue each other and they dip into his, his earnings and they just pay each other millions of dollars. And that's just a small part of this book, but it's an example of how James Brown's life is a metaphor for what has gone on in this country, in this city and in this country. This is how the book begins. 
I'm sorry I got so serious. I made you all depressed already. It's really not a depressing book, really, honestly. It's enlightenment, supposed to feel good, make you feel better, you know. This is how the book begins. Back in the 1960s, when I was a kid living in St. Albans, Queens, in New York City, there was a huge forbidding... Wait a minute. Sorry about that. Can I start again? I just feel my mother in the room. She's like, take your scarf off, take your hat off. What you What's the matter with you? All right, is that better? Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Mom. Okay. Back in the 1960s, when I was a kid living in St. Albans, Queens, in New York City, there was a huge, forbidding black and gray house that sat on a lovely street not far from my home. The house was located across a set of Long Island Railroad tracks that basically split our neighborhood in half. My side of the tracks was the poor side, tightly clumped, small, exhausted-looking homes, some with neat lawns and manicured flower beds, others like mine in total disarray. The neighborhood was mostly working class blacks, post office and city transit workers from America's South who had moved to the relative bliss of Queens from the crowded funk of Brooklyn, Harlem and the Bronx. It was a proud crowd. We had moved up. We were living the American dream. But on the other side of the railroad tracks was the real high life, big sumptuous homes with luscious lawns, long shiny Cadillacs that eased down smooth silent streets, a gigantic all glass church, a beautiful park, and a glistening brand new steak and take diner run by the Nation of Islam that stayed open 24 hours on weekends. The nation scared the crap out of everybody in my neighborhood back, back in those days, by the way. Not even the worst, most desperate junkie would stalk into a steak and take and pull out his heater. He'd be dead before he hit the door. Most of the, many of the Nation of Islam Muslims who worked in steak and take were ex-cons, serious, easygoing men in clean white shirts and white bow ties who warned you about the ills of pork as they served you all the cheesesteaks you wanted. That place was smooth business. And then there were the celebs who had bought homes nearby. Roy Campanella, Lena Horne, Count Basie, Ella Fitzgerald, Fats Waller, Milt Hinton, all stars, all big time. But none of them lived in the huge forbidding house on Murdoch Avenue with vines creeping onto the spiral roof and a moat that crossed the small built-in stream with a black Santa Claus illuminated at Christmas and a black awning that swooped down from the front yard in the shape of a wild hairdo. None of them was James Brown. We used to stand outside his house and dream, me and my best friend Billy Smith. Sometimes crowds of us would stand outside all kids from my neighborhood, kids from other neighborhoods. A kid from nearby Hollis, Queens named Al Sharpton used to stand out there sometimes, but I didn't know him in those days. The rumor was, and this went on for years, that the godfather of soul would slip out the house at night, walk around the corner to nearby Addisley Park, sit down and talk to kids and just give out money. Give it out by the tens and the fifties if you just promised him you'd stay in school. We hung out in the park and waited and waited and waited. He never showed up. We waited all months, all summer, all winter. Our promise is ready, but he never showed. I knew of no one in my neighborhood who actually met the great man until my sister Dottie, age 11, fell into our house one night, breathless, sweaty and screaming. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Helen. Helen was a sister above Dottie in age and Dot's guru in those days. And she came running and the rest of us gathered around. It took several minutes for Dottie to compose herself. And finally she blurted it out. 
She and her best friend, Shelly Cleveland, had slipped across the railroad tracks to linger outside James Brown's house after school like all the kids did. Of course, he didn't come out, but that afternoon, Dottie and Shelly decided to do something that no kid in my neighborhood, no kid in New York City, no kid in the world I ever knew of at that point in my eight-year-old life had ever done or even thought to do. They went up to the front door and knocked. (laughs) A white maid answered. She said, what do you want? Can we speak to Mr. Brown, Dottie asked. Wait a minute, the maid said. She disappeared. A few moments later, James Brown himself appeared at the door with two white women, one on each arm, both dressed in 60s wear, complete with beehive hairdos. Dottie and Shelley nearly fainted. The godfather of souls seemed tickled. He greeted them warmly. He asked Dottie, what's your name? She said, Dottie, stay in school, Dottie. Don't be no fool. He shook her hand and shook Shelley's hand and the two girls fled. We listened breathless as Dottie recounted this. It seemed unbelievable. Even my mother was impressed. See that, she barked. Listen to James Brown. Stay in school. But who cared about what she said? What was important was that James Brown said it. Dottie's star soared. She had always been a total James Brown fanatic, but in a house of 12 kids where food was scarce and attention scarcer, with ownership of the latest James Brown 45 RPM was like owning the Holy Grail, Dottie morphed from underling to holding a kind of special status. Ambassador famed them, chosen member of the tribe, a button man, a made member of the mob. In other words, a big kid with gold star standing. The shine lasted months. She would stand in our freezing living room on cold winter nights when there was nothing to eat and nowhere to go and no money to go there anyway and play out the scenario. He's so small, she'd declare. He's a little guy. She'd leap up and whip her hair back in James Brown style, thrust out her jaw and holler in a southern accent, stay in school, Dottie, don't be no fool. (laughs) We howled. Visitors, neighbors, even my gruff stepfather and the serious people from church asked her to relive the moment, which she did, giving a blow-by-blow account of how the hardest working man in show business, Mr. Dynamite, had come to the door of his house and given it to her straight. Stay in school, Dottie, don't be no fool. I watched this all in grim silence. My crummy sister had beat me to the punch. She had kissed the black stone. She had met James Brown. And my jealousy lasted for years. Every man or woman in this life has a song. And if you're lucky, you can remember it. The song of your wedding. The song of your first love. The song of your childhood. For African Americans, the song of our life. The song of our entire history is embodied in the life and times of James Brown. He is easily one of the most famous African-Americans in the world and arguably the most influential African-American in pop music history. His picture hangs on the walls of African homes and huts where people didn't even know what he did for a living. His imprint has been felt throughout Western Europe, Asia, the Far East. His dances, his language, his music, his style, his pioneering funk, his manner of speaking are stamped into the American consciousness as deeply as that of any civil rights leader or sports hero, including Muhammad Ali, Michael Jordan, Martin Luther King, and Malcolm X. He is also arguably the most misunderstood and misrepresented African-American figure of the last 300 years, and I would speculate that he is nearly as important and as influential in American social history as, say, Harriet Tubman or Frederick Douglass. 
When his 2006 funeral procession steered slowly through Harlem, men rushed out of barbershops with shaving cream on their faces. Children stayed home from school. Old people wept openly. The Apollo Theater crowds lined the street for five city blocks. Thousands of people from 125th Street all the way to 130th Street. Black America from front to back took a knee and bowed. The king of pop himself, Michael Jackson, flew to Augusta for the funeral service, a coronation from a king to a king. Black Americans loved Michael too, but while he was black America's child, abandoned at times, forsaken, adopted again, in, out, black, white, not sure, there was no question about who James Brown was. James Brown was our soul. He was unquestionably black, unquestionably proud, unquestionably a man. He was real and he was funny. He was the uncle from down south who shows up at your house, gets drunk, takes out his teeth, embarrasses you in front of your friends and grunts, stay in school. But you love him and you know he loves you. But there is more. And here's where the story grows extra body parts. During the course of his 45-year career, James Brown sold more than 200 million records, recorded 321 albums, 16 of them hits, wrote 832 songs and made 45 gold records. He revolutionized American music. He was the first to fuse jazz into popular funk, the very first to record a live album that became a number one record. His influence created several categories of music now tabulated by Billboard, Variety, Downbeat, and Rolling Stone. He sang with everyone from hip-hop creator African Bimbada to Pavarotti to jazz pioneer arranger Oliver Nelson. His band was revolutionary. It was made up of outstanding players and vocalists among the best popular music this nation has ever produced. But to the music world, he was an odd appendage. James Brown never made once the cover of Rolling Stone magazine during his lifetime. He was considered a kind of freak, a large rock in the road that you couldn't get around, a clown, a black category. He was a super talent, a great dancer, a real show, a laugher, a drug addict, a troublemaker, all hair and teeth a guy who couldn't stay out of trouble. The man simply defied description. The reason? Brown was a child of country in hiding, America's South. So that's how the book begins, more or less. It sets up the journey of my discovery of who James Brown was. And what I basically did was I went to the South and I spent more or less three, you know, three, not every single day, but I spent about three and a half years researching this book and I spent a lot of time in in South Carolina. James Brown was, well, here's the, here's the, the uh, sort of half fiction version of James Brown's life. He was born in a shack in Barnwell County, South Carolina, moved to Augusta when he was, you know, indeterminate age, some say five, some say seven, some say nine. Uh, he's, he lived in it with his aunt, Honey, in a quote unquote war, so, so-called whorehouse. And then, uh, and then he was caught and sent to jail at 16 for stealing parts from a car or something like that. He was sent to a juvenile facility in North Georgia. When he served three years and a day. When he came out, the fiction part of it has him living in the basement of Bobby Bird's house. And then from there, he and Bobby Bird formed the Famous Flames, and then they went on to become musical history. That's the sort of fictionalized, half-truth version of James Brown's life. The true version of James Brown's life, from my perspective and what I discovered, and if you know something different, you can write your own book and talk about it, (laughs) is that he was born in Barnwell County. His mother and father lived together. At a certain point, his father drove his mother away. 
But his father was a very gentle man. He wasn't some guy who just pulled out a gun and shot in the air and did all this crazy stuff like you saw in that movie about him, which was about 40% fiction. Also, in addition to being born in Barnwell, James Brown came from a sharecropping family that lived in a town called Ellington, South Carolina. Ellington, South Carolina no longer exists because Ellington, South Carolina and 361 square miles of surrounding Ellington, South Carolina, six, village, six towns were, were simply moved. They were simply picked up and moved so that the American government and GE and the DuPont Company could create something called the Savannah River Site, which is the largest nuclear bomb-making facility in the world. They did this in 1951. They didn't say anything to the people there. They just had a big meeting in the center of town one day, and they said, you all have to move because the Cold War is here. So we're going to hold, those of you who have houses, we'll pick your houses up and move them, or we'll give you money for houses if you, can, if you, if you want it. Those of you who don't have houses, which was the majority of the people, which most were sharecroppers, black sharecroppers, you know, good luck. Good luck. Have a nice life, and we'll see you later. And they cleared this land out, and they dispersed these people. And one of the families that was dispersed was the family of a guy named Oscar Gaines who had swum to the South Carolina line after escaping a prison camp in Georgia. That was James Brown's great-great-grandfather. Oscar Gaines had a family. That family had many different parts. James Brown was one of the children in that family. That family was dispersed and sent sent out into the world. So when you catch up to James Brown's stories, you catch up to him and his father in this little place in Barnwell County, when in fact his father was connected to all these other parts of James Brown's family that had been dispersed throughout that part of South Carolina by this gigantic bomb-making facility, which is still there today, and which no one has ever mentioned. And those 8,000 black sharecroppers there vanished into history, and all the six towns are gone. All that's left now are the driveways and the unpaved roads because it's just that's where they make bombs. That's the first part of James Brown's history. The next part of James Brown's history is that there's some indication that James Brown was actually three or four years older than he said he was. He always said he was a certain age, but when I talked to Nate Floyd Scott of the famous, the last living famous flame before he died, he was insistent and could prove in his mind that James Brown was four years older than he said he was. The other thing about it is that after James Brown came out of prison, and when James Brown went to stay with his Aunt Honey, <clears throat> his Aunt Honey was just, she was not a madame in a whorehouse. You know, when I fell out of school in 15, I went down south. I mean, real down south, not Baltimore. Baltimore was like half down. Baltimore was like half down south and half, you know. It's got too much down south in it, really, to me, because the way they treat y'all down here is just a shame. I'm telling you, it's just... <laughs> They ought to just go to jail for the way they treat black folks at this time. I'm glad I don't live here. No, I'm just kidding. But, um, but there is a lot of down south here in Baltimore now, you know, and some of it is just pretty, I mean, it's pretty disturbing. But we'll talk about that another time. But in any case, when I went down south, there were poor people did all kinds of stuff to make a way, you know. Yeah, some people sold a little tail out the house, but they also worked as a maid for the white folks. And they also, you know, this one collected a little tin and this one ran a card game and this guy worked and his money ran everything for a while until he got, a, got married and left. And so I don't, you know, the depiction of James Brown's grandmother, uh, his aunt, his great aunt in uh, the movie Get On Up. First of all, I'm about done with these movies that depict black women as big fat mamas who just say, you know, you special boy, something good going to happen. Can Aren't black women, there's some black women who are like shy maybe or some who like science or maybe some read books about, you know, 
carpentry? I mean, is it possible? Or do they just like, just as big fat mamas who just do Tyler Perry appearances in every white movie? So I don't believe the fiction that he lived <clears throat> in a whorehouse where they were just selling tail all the time. They did a lot to, to raise money because they were poor people. Poor people will do anything to make a dollar change pockets. And can you blame them? You cannot. The second thing was that after he came out of prison in Tacoa, Georgia, the movie depicts James Brown as like living in Bobby Bird's basement and chasing Bobby Bird's sister around. Now this book, I interviewed for the first time, the only interview that I know of, of his first wife, Velma Brown. And he was friends with Velma Brown until he died. And she was so upset, so, so many years that she'd been reading this stuff about James Brown living in Bobby Bird's basement. <clears throat> Do the math. The man came out in 1951. His first hit was in 1955. He was not living in Bird's basement for four years. Velma Brown states clearly, she said he couldn't be living in Bird's basement because he was living in my house with me. And we had, he had two kids, and he worked as a janitor in the Tacoa Elementary School. And I met the lady who ran the Tacoa Elementary School, who, who was the principal of the Tacoa Elementary School. It was a little girl. She said she and her friend used to sneak in the basement to hear the janitor play piano. Like he dumped the coal, and after he'd finished dumping in the coal, so he'd go downstairs and play the piano and, and, she said, and sing. And she said he was wonderful. She said we were his only audience. So his first wife, he was married to her for 10 years. <clears throat> And um, when, he, when he, that marriage broke up, she said to him, you know, I, you know she, she knew that Tacoa was not the place for him. She knew he, wasn't, he couldn't, there was no future for him there. So she let him go. She loved him and she let him go. And she said to him, I don't need anything from you. I can take care of myself. But I got these two boys here and they need a place to stay. He bought her a piece of land and he built a house on it and he handled, handed her the title to the house. And that was it. And several times over the course of the years, people would come to Miss Velma's house and knock on the door and say, I can get you millions from your, from your ex-husband. And she'd just say, nope. She worked in a factory for 30 years. And when James Brown died, when he was in the hospital, dying in Atlanta, he called her. She didn't, she said, because he called her. She said, he called me so much times it didn't even seem appropriate. And he never even told her that he was in the hospital. That broke her heart at the end because they were good friends. When her relatives died or something like that, when her father died, James Brown, who he didn't, and he didn't even like her father. because fa- When James Brown came out of prison, by the way, the fiction is he came out of prison, he was called Music Box, and everybody liked him. Mrs. Brown tells a different story. When he came out of the boys' reformatory in Tacoa, Georgia, they called him convict, and nobody wanted to be bothered with him. She was, he couldn't get a job. He got a job washing cars. The only, time he, the only reason why he got a job washing cars was because the, Tacoa at the time had a lot of factories, and all the workers, all the white workers had those jobs. And when the openings came, they would hire black workers. But someone with a record couldn't get a, job, a good job like that. Nobody wanted to be bothered with him. And so she has that memory in her heart. And this was, book was a way, I think, for her to sort of cleanse the plate and, and let people see what really, what really happened. In any case, <clears throat> after, you know, after his Tacoa years and his first, uh, first hit, please, please, please hit, that, that happened in Macon, Georgia. He went through another five-year period where he kind of fell out. You know, he didn't really, he had no major hits. And the flames basically fell apart. And during that time, James Brown worked the Chitlin Circuit by himself often, hiring pickup bands with Nate Floyd Scott, who was interviewed in this book, as the only musician because Nate Floyd knew the music and he could teach the, the local guys. And he worked his way through the Chitlin Circuit at a time when you, you know, when you had cats 
like Little Richard and Jackie Wilson and the Midnighters who could pummel your head both on the stage or off it. I mean, they could smoke you on the stage and beat you up afterwards. And so he had to fight through that to get to where he got to 1960 and 1961, 62, when his first sort of major R&B hit, out of sight came out. Um, in terms of his, and then of course, then he just pushes forward, and then you and I saw him, uh, or a lot of more of us saw him. I mean, he was always seen in his prime as sort of the scream at the end of the dial where black radio lived. But to African Americans, his evolution in many ways reflected a lot of our journey. Of course, all of you know about Say It Loud and Black and I'm Proud and so forth, which, by the way, was really written in most part by Pee Wee Ellis, the tenor saxophone player in James Brown's band. And let me just say, just, just give them just a little bit about the musicians that played with James Brown. There were probably about 200 musicians that went through James Brown's band. And I would say none are more important than Fred Wesley and Pee Wee Ellis because these were the guys who, who created his sound. Pee Wee Ellis is the guy who wrote, he wrote a lot of the, the main hits and he also wrote some jazz standards. He was a jazz musician. James Brown had his, the great musicians in James Brown was James Brown's band, like um, Wayman Reed. These guys were jazz. Wayman Reed went, to re, went on to replace um, uh, Cannonball. What's the guy from Philly? Um, any jazz players here? Trumpet player from Philly, Lee Morgan. He replaced Lee Morgan and Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers and then went on to the Count Basie Band and married Sarah Vaughan. Pee Wee Ellis left James Brown and went on to do the CTI recordings with Dinah Washington, Oliver Nelson. These guys were heavy hitters. Fred Wesley went on after Pee Wee Ellis left. Fred Wesley took over the band and he created like Black Caesar, the scores, all that stuff. I'm just going to give you some crude examples of how James Brown's ingenuity in music work because I you know I was supposed to bring an AV thing and all that but I don't know how to work that stuff too good so you just got to bear with me the blues is a 12 bar structure those of you who don't go to church I feel sorry for you so this is for those of you who have not been in church those of you who do go to church if you don't know this then you are praying in the wrong church and let's talk to your preacher afterwards to get him tuned in but the blues is basically one four five see here's one and then you change on the fifth bar and you change back at the seventh bar. So like this, doom, 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 two, two, three, four, three, two, three, four, four, two, go to the four, four, doom, 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 four, then back to the one, two, three, one, two, then to the five, two, three, to the four, two, three, four, to the one, two, three, four, to the five, and then one, two, you got it? So when James Brown was moving out of the blues, because he came out of the swing, the Louis Jordan swing, to the blues. And then when he was moving out of the blues to what we know or call funk or soul or R&B, he started to, he, not just him, him and his band, him and the guys who was doing what he told them to do, they started to move away from the moving to the fore. Well, out of sight, if you listen out of and then he goes to the four and he goes back to the one then he goes to the five. Oh yeah out of sight five 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 again see that's that's an altered blues and you know you go to college the professor will say you know altered blues is the augmented pentatonic scale of it's an altered blues. And he altered the blues because he said, you know, this, this ain't working. So can you fix it and make it work? And Pee Wee and these guys, Nat Jones, these guys said, well, you know, stay on the five. Okay. 
And that's how they started to alter and change what we know as rhythm and blues. And at a certain point, he stopped going to the four chord. So you got cold sweat, boom, da, 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 on, so on the one, da, 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 da. and he just stayed there. I don't care. And he's still on the one, right? And so he started to learn as he stayed on the one, he needed interesting parts so that the music would continue to have the bounce to support the lyrics. And that's where the great musicians came in. Cheese, um, um, Jimmy, Jimmy Nolan, who was James Brown's guitar player, if you don't understand counterpoint, you go to the conservatory of music, they say this is counterpoint. They pull out the third string, the third part of the string part of Bach, and they play it, and it makes perfect sense. You pull out, you want to learn counterpoint, listen to James Brown, and list, pull out the guitar player of, of, of Jimmy Nolan. Jimmy Nolan is the guy who created this. That was Jimmy Nolan. And Cheese, um, what was his name? Holland Cheese. They used to call him Cheese. I can't remember his last name. But these guys worked together. And the drum parts of James, again, going to Cold Sweat, was, well, first of all, if you listen to Cold Sweat, and if you listen to, to um, Miles Davis' So What, you'll hear that Pee Wee Ellis said, he was influenced by Miles Davis. People we all studied with Sonny Rollins, by the way. When he got to James Brown's band, when they did Cold Sweat, he said he listened to the song by Miles Davis. It's called So What, which goes like this. Now you listen to Cold Sweat. Same thing. So... The other thing about Cold Sweat, which is just one example, and there are many numerous examples of James Brown's evolution in the way he and his band changed this music, was that he developed this whole business of laying the one beat on the first beat of the third bar, so there's always that bang. So again, Cold Sweat, it's like boom, da, na, boom, da, da, boom, da, na, boom, da, boom, da, na, boom, da, da, boom, da, here it comes. And that was called landing, landing hard on that one beat of the third bar. That was new. It was revolutionary. And finally, the most, one of the most important elements about James Brown's music came from the drums. And James Brown, he did play drums and he did play organ. And you have a lot of guys who are in James Brown's band like Bernard Purdy, who, you know, who I, I saw a story in the New York Times about Bernard Purdy. So he was in James Brown's band. Bernard Purdy was not in James Brown's band. Bernard Purdy did records with James Brown band. Clyde Stubblefield was in James Brown's band. Now, Clyde Stubblefield was the guy who really, along with Jabo Starks, but more Clyde, because James Brown hated Clyde, but he loved Clyde because he could only dance to Clyde because Clyde Stubblefield could do something no drummer could do. When Clyde Stubblefield was growing up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, he used to hear the train outside his window, and it would go... And if you listen to his drumming, you know, like if you see a, a parade drummer or you see a drummer play, they hold their sticks loose. But, and in jazz, you see drummers hold their stick loose. But in blues, they just go straight fat, you know, boom, tack, do that, da, da. And they're banging hard with this, with, this, with this left hand. Sometimes they hold the stick like this, and then they're banging. But Clyde Stubblefield didn't play like that. He kept his sticks loose. So when he was making his beat, it was, and this is all one, one stick. And 
And when James Brown heard that, he auditioned Clyde Stubblefield with four other drummers. He said, that's the guy I want. And when you hear his music, you hear Funky Drummer. That's Clyde Stubblefield. Funky Drummer, the song Funky Drummer has been sampled thousands of times, not hundreds, thousands of times. It's everywhere. Go listen to James Brown. And then he just, you know what he does? He just, he has a little groove. He said, let's start at one, two, and it's like seven minutes long in this groove. And then he says, give the drummer some. It's all live. Just give the drummer some. And Clyde just starts playing. Now, Clyde Stubberfield has dialysis now. He's in, he lives in Wisconsin. Totally unknown to people. Fred Wesley, who was one of great, great jazz trombone player. Pee Wee Ellis couldn't get arrested in America. He lives in London. He, I visited him and I talked to him in this book. So some of the great innovations that James Brown did, he had to share with some of his musicians. And he wasn't, his reputation was that he was cheap, that he didn't pay. He would find musicians $5 if they didn't have their shoes shine and stuff like that. That's all true. But people who read that haven't run a band before. And they're, not, they're probably not musicians. Because he ain't the first. Now, I'm, I'm, I've, been, I was, I've been a musician a long time. I, mean, a, a real, I was a professional musician for nine straight years. I worked with, I worked with Jimmy Scott, Anita Baker, Robert Washington. And so I can give you a little bit of my own experience, what it's like to be in the band and to be a band leader. To run a band is not easy. You got one guy, he can play the part, but he gets drunk all the time. You got another guy, he's a great guy, but he can't cut the part. This guy, he's a horrible trumpet player, but he, can't, but he can dance. And so this guy had, James Brown had like 12, 15 people that he had. Plus he had a string section. And he had the, and you're dealing with the, the band salaries, the promoter, the travel, the DJs that you have to bribe, the record company, the promoters on the, level, the local level, the national promoters. There's a lot to think about. And if he was such a bad <clears throat> band leader, why did not some of those other musicians go on to become like great solo artists? Now, I know Maceo has done pretty well for himself. Um, although, and Maceo is a great soloist. Maceo is very, he does, does more with six notes than most saxophone players do with all this stuff. But the composers of James, Brown, James Brown's music were the drummers and by and large Pee Wee Ellis and Fred Wesley. And he had a very distant relationship with both of them and they both loved and hated him because he was hard to deal with. He was, a ta- he was a taskmaster. His band rehearsed. You couldn't rehearse a band the way James Brown rehearsed his band because if they, if they weren't right on stage, he'd just make them rehearse right after the gig. Then they'd get on the bus and drive 10 hours to Columbus, Ohio and do a gig right then. Um, <clears throat> but Miles Davis loved James Brown. A lot of musicians who were jazz musicians loved his work. But the other thing about him that's interesting is that in addition to being a musical pioneer, he was a horrible a very, very bad person when it came to women. I mean, I don't spend a lot of time talking about that in the book because it's just been written about enough. I don't, you know, I'm not trying to soft pedal what he did, but the larger picture of who the man was is, is real, was really my, you know, was my purpose. I did talk about that. Uh, he did have some outside children. Um, and he had, you know, he was traveling on the road all the time, so he didn't, he probably wasn't the father he could have been. His first, his oldest son, Teddy, died in a car crash, and that just, that, that, that really broke him, that broke him up. See, Mr. Brown was a man who was like most people from down south, not most people, but, you know, people from down south, and you understand this. I'm not telling you something you don't know. They like to be proper. See, in New York, we don't care what we look like. We shit, huh? We're waiting for the subway. It's cold. I don't shit. 
you know. But in the South, it's about being proper. You might not have two, you know, you don't have two cents in your pocket, but you're going to give a soda to that person and you make sure they have something. They don't know that you're suffering, your back is hurt, and then you're about to lose your house, you're living in your car. That's just how Southerners are. Black Southerners and white Southerners. So James Brown was a proper man. And he had grown up with nappy head, being the dark-skinned kid from the bad side of town with no good clothes and stuff. So when he got grown, he was clean all the time. And he had called everyone by their surname, and he expected to be called by his surname as well. And the, the title of the book comes from uh, something James Brown told Reverend Sharpton. By the way, when you hear Reverend Sharpton talk, you're hearing James Brown talk. Because Reverend Sharpton traveled with James Brown from when he was about, he started when he was 17 and he left him 15 years later. He left New York as Al Sharpton, the boy preacher. He came back to New York 15 years later as the Rev, Reverend Al Sharpton, kicking arse and taking, driving New York crazy. Uh, he does his hair like James. You know, I covered Michael Jackson during the Victory Tour in 1984, and Al Sharpton was on that tour. And it was pretty, <laughs> I was working for People Magazine at the time. Uh, and the Jacksons hated me, you know, they hated People Magazine. They, you know, they always put white people on the cover. They were shocked when I showed up. You know, and they just said, well, he's Uncle Tom. And they didn't talk to me for months. And that was my only assignment. Like, my assignment was to cover Michael Jackson. I got to People Magazine, and six weeks later, they, they called me into the office. They said, Michael Jackson's publicist, whatever, getting on the plane. Go get on that plane with him and find out about this tour. I didn't even have a credit card. I said, well, I don't have the money. to get." And they, they pulled out, and they put money out their pocket. And I bought a ticket, got on the plane, got next to the guy, and and I ended up on the road with Michael Jackson for about, about six months. I covered him over in total about nine months. And uh, so I got to, you know, I can't say I got to know him, but I saw him and I talked to him and I got to know his mother. His mother's really nice. I mean, the Jacksons are really nice people. And it's funny, Michael Jackson and James Brown have a lot in common. And I write in this book about how when James Brown died, Michael Jackson went to Augusta, Georgia, where James Brown was in the funeral home. And he got there at 11 o'clock at night. He stayed there five hours. He combed his hair, he did, and he didn't sit down once. And the next morning, he went to James Brown's funeral. One of, the, one of the few stars who showed up, by the way. All those people who benefited from his largesse. How many of them showed up at his funeral? All those people who say they loved him and made all this noise about it when he was in jail. Where are they now that his, his estate is tied up in South Carolina? If he were alive today, he would be so ashamed that his legacy, the man who tried, he tried to make good for what he did. How many stars die and leave everything they have to educate poor children? I can't think of nobody. He would be so disappointed that this thing has been allowed to run amok. And again, that's another, you know, it's another metaphor for how his life has been, his life is a metaphor for how African-American life is in this country. During the course of his life, he was never seen as anything as other. You know, he was kind of like a special thing. I mean, type on you, when you get home, type on your computer the Tammy Show. The Tammy Show in, in 1964, California. They told James Brown, he was performing with several other stars, that the Rolling Stones would close the show. Now, I've seen Mick Jagger's version of the Tammy Show in the movie. But the real version, according to Charles Bobbitt, who was James Brown's manager for 41 years, is that James Brown didn't have no dressing room. They made him work his routine in the auditorium. 
And he worked as routine in the auditorium and he told his band, let's bring it. They saw what was happening. Now you look at the Tammy Show performance by James Brown that night. He smoked it. He smoked it. And then the Rolling Stones followed it. And look at the Rolling Stones performing. And you compare for yourself. Let the video, you know, like with the cops, let the, let the video tell the story. He just burned it up. He was very competitive. He did not like Mick Jagger. And the irony is that in his, according to Charles Bobbitt, James Brown did not like Mick Jagger. He didn't like Mick Jagger any more than he liked, say, I don't know, like Reverend Sharpton said, the Red Hot Chili Peppers flew to Augusta once to meet James Brown. He wouldn't meet with him because he said, I don't feel like it. When he played in Zaire at the, the big fight with uh, uh, Foreman and Ali, afterwards, you know, the President Mobutu made it clear that he wanted people to come visit him so he'd give them a gift, you know, maybe a bag of diamonds. James Brown said, I don't want no gift. He went straight to the airport and waited four hours for a flight to come home. Kill him and leave. That's what he would tell Al Sharpton. He'd say, he had it, you know, when the band would hit, bop, and he would watch from the side, you know, the side of the stage. Sometimes he'd smoke a cigarette and he'd just watch. He'd watch the audience, and when they were just perfectly lubed up, greased, that's when he hit the stage, and he would kill them. I mean, if you listen to the Apollo Theater live concerts, when he had the string section, you know, which was made up of four, the only Northerners in his band were from Philly, four string players, Richard Jones and three other women. And they were the only ones that did not have to step. Because James Brown told Richard, and Richard Jones is still alive, I saw him yesterday. He told Richie, he said, look, I want the strings to step. Because everybody else, you know. And, and <laughs> Richard said, you know, he had a cello up there, you know. <laughs> so Richard said, he said, well, Mr. Brown, you know, it's okay for me to stay. He said, but the big violin, you know, he said, he was, he said the big violin, he can't do the James Brown. I said, all right, all right, y'all just sway a little bit. But the other thing is that when they went to play the Latin Casino in 1966, and they, you know, they would hire a big section to play with James Brown. And they took James Brown's string section and stuck it in the back. James Brown walked in and he, he looked at, you know, he walked in and they started, and he looked and he saw the string section. And he, he called the contract over. He said, excuse me, come here. And the guy, and the guy came over and he said, where's Mr. Jones in them? And the guy said, well, they're in the back there. And, and James Brown said, oh, he said, well, can you sing Goodfoot? And the guy said, no. He said, well, you will be singing it if Mr. Jones and them ain't coming up to the front. <laughs> Richard Jones said that it was like the Red Sea party you never saw. And, you know, sometimes when they would play overseas, Richard said it, the hard job, because what James Brown would tell his musicians, he said, you get the strings together, you work that. And so Richard said, you know, to get German string players to swing was like, I mean, it just didn't happen. Yeah, they played the same way again and again and again. So he just said, just play soft, play soft, it's all right. But um, the thing about, I think, I think the most, look, I, I got into this book because I was broke and needed the money. You know, the, 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 uh, the, um, the Good Lord Bird, which won the National Book Award, had not been published because I had not finished it. And I wasn't working. My, you know, my ex-wife, I walked into the house. You know, it was, when you walk into the house and you see, like, you know, them little blue packets on the floor. I know some of you don't know what that means, you know, like two of you. But the rest of you, you know, when you see them little blue packets on the floor, you might want to think about canceling that Christmas vacation in the Bahamas you think. <laughs> so, you know, and then, you know, I, I said this earlier today, but you should hear it. You know, when I went to, you know, when I went to like court and my ex-wife's lawyer walked in and I don't mean this to disparage nobody, anything like that. But when her lawyer walked in, 
with a gray pinstripe suit and a yarmulke on. I said, I guess I better throw out those vacation folders. Because homie had it all set up. It was all set up. And he just, he just, he just, all he needed to do was take that yarmulke off at the end so I could drop my last quarter and on the way out, you know, plunk. <laughs> so but this, this book kind of fell on my lap. I, I mean, I had offers to do other books. I just turned them down no matter what money was involved. But this was, because, no, you know, people, th- you know, people they, they approach you with book ideas and they, they offer to pay. And I had several, I had several that happened at the time. But this was James Brown. And I said, you know, I love James Brown. I, I really want to do him right. Because several, several books have been written about him. And I really didn't feel like I knew him that well. So I took it on. But it was really hard. It was really hard. It was a hard project because James Brown didn't want to be known. That's the thing. He didn't want people to know. His manager, Buddy, Buddy Dallas, said, you know, in 24 years of working with him, I have never known somebody more who does not want to be known. And Charles Bobbitt said the same thing. He said, for example, James Brown never cursed. Like the first three minutes of the movie, Get On Up, you see, he says, you know, who took a shit? My, you know, James Brown never said that. Charles, Charles Bobbitt said in 41 years of knowing James Brown, I have, I have heard him curse maybe three times. He just wasn't that. He wanted to be a proper man. Now, he couldn't always be a proper man because he wasn't raised in a place where proper was part of the, you know, part of the, what we know as proper was part of the vocabulary. But he tried his best to be proper and he tried to be decent and he was very disappointed at the end of his life that, that the, he was disappointed in the welfare state that had, and, and the drugs that had come into the black community. I don't have to tell you all what drugs have done to black, poor black people, poor people in general in this country. So that was, a, that was a, something that was hard on his heart. And at, toward the end of his life, um, all his great musicians had left him. He was hard to work for. Pee Wee left, Fred left, Maceo, all of them. Sweet Charles Sorrell, they all left him. Um, and so he would do these concerts. You saw him at the end of his life. He'd have these cheerleaders doing the pom-pom behind him, and they'd be playing song. And it was sort of like a caricature of what he once was. Because James Brown, in his prime, never played fast. I mean, you, you know, the reason why his, one of the reasons why his music and that music during that period is so unique is because they recorded on different drum sets in different studios with different musicians. Nowadays, everyone has the same program and stuff. They, they all use the same computer. They got garage band or, you know, Pro Tools or Cubase, whatever, and all the music sounds the same. They use digital recording stuff. The other thing about James Brown I want to talk about, and then I'll let you answer, ask your questions, is that he, um, he was really competitive with Motown and Earth, Wind and & Fire and Isaac Hayes and all of them because he felt... That, and he, he was wrong in feeling it, but he felt that Motown was like the light, bright, you know, wannabe white type of Negroes. And he was a country boy. And, he, and him and his band was some country colored folks from down south. And <laughs> maybe they were, but they, they could surely. I mean, my friend Leon Jordan, the guy I used to work with in Philly, he said he was traveling in Europe with stylistics and uh, they got word that James Brown's bus broke down. And, uh, and, you know, he, and, and the Stylistics band, these North Philly cats, these are hard, you know, some hard people, you know. He said, James Brown and his men got on the bus. And I said, what were they like? He said, man, they were some country, some country cats, man. And he said, you know, these cats from North Philly, they ain't never been out of North Philly. They said, man, them some country guys. 
<laughs> but, they, but, but he felt, he felt like there, there's a vignette in the book where he was staying in the Hollywood hotel in Hollywood and Bill Cosby was staying in the hotel. And Bill Cosby sent down a, a plate of collard greens to James Brown's room as a joke. And they had to hold James Brown back from going up there and beat and kill Bill Cosby down. He was, he was very upset by that. He felt that, and so his com- competition with Motown was not so much based on music. I mean, he, he knew they, they made great music, and he didn't really, you know, he, he would, you know, grudgingly acknowledge the greatness of, you know, Ashford and Simpson and these great songwriters and Smokey and Marvin, but he was always competitive because it was like Ali versus Frazier with him being Frazier, you know, the hard-hitting kid out of Philly and Ali being the, you know, and, and Motown being the light, bright kid from Louisville. Um, but he had a real compassion for artists as well. He did a, he did a whole record for Lily, Little, Willie, Little Willie who died. And when Isaac Hayes was broke, um, Isaac Hayes got a knock on the door one morning. And he opened the door and James Brown was standing there. And he, he handed Isaac Hayes $3,000. He said, Isaac, why are you letting people know you're down? Don't let them see you down. Now I want you on your feet so I can beat you again. Don't tell nobody. And he was finally, he was funny about his money. He was funny about his money because he learned as a boy from that, as I tell you about the Savannah River nuclear site where they just walked in and told all these people of all, whatever color, you got to go. He felt like the government could come into your house anytime they wanted to and just hang their hat and tell you to leave. And when he died, he lived in Barnwell County just within sight of the land where he grew, where he grew up. And, and, and you can see when, you, when you're in Barnwell County, you can see these giant towers above the Savannah River nuclear site. And he would stand on his porch and he'd say to Charles Bobbitt, he'd say, you see that, Mr. Bobbitt? That's the government. That's the government. They're listening to me. They can, they can hear me through my teeth. They're listening through my teeth. He was paranoid about the government taking what he had. He had been cleaned to the walls by the IRS twice. By 1984, he was broke. And, and he could have made some quick money making sneaker commercials and beer commercials. He refused. He once went to Don King because he wanted to start a record label. And Don King said, I don't know anything about music. I'll give you $10,000. James Brown just walked out the room. He didn't believe in poverty. He didn't, I mean, he didn't believe in charity. He believed in work. And kids would say to him, Mr. Brown, I'm having a hard time. Ain't you got a job? One time he went to New York to a homeless shelter. And, and a couple of the guys went to him and they said, you know, Mr. Brown, you know, we're trying to do better. You know, we just, it's just hard out here. And there were so many men in there that he had to stand on a stepladder. And James Brown said, he got mad. He said, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. He said, if I was here, I, I would get me a job. I might be wearing the boss's uniform when I get home, but I'd have me something. And y'all got to get it together. He was really conservative in that way. He didn't want to hear. He grew up hard. And he, and he didn't have a lot of space for, you know, the, the touchy-feely part of the, you know, the stuff that you give to your kids. Some of you. <laughs> like me. No. Anyway, um, he buried money in places. He would go to a hotel. He went to a hotel in San Francisco, put $10,000 under the carpet, came back six months later, peeled the carpet back, took his $10,000. His son, his son Terry said when his father gave him money, it was the edges with the money was old, edges chewed off like rats had chewed at. Because he, he, his manager asked him, Mr. Brown, if something happens to you, what are we gonna, what, you know, how are we going to know what you, what you got? And James Brown said, he wrote it on a yellow legal pad. He wrote one word, and he turned it around so you could see it, and the word was dig. <laughs> he buried his money. He used to tell his band, you know. But when you look at what happened to his money and look at what happened to his state, you'll see that maybe he had the right idea because um, 
All that money he left is gone to lawyers in South Carolina. South Carolina is like 50 years behind the rest of America, really. I've never been anywhere like it. And, uh, and they just change the rules as they go. They move the goalposts any way they want, change the rules any way they want. And if you get in the way of them, they will knock you so hard you'll be blabbering for therapy for months. They locked up his James Brown's accountant. The only man that James Brown trusted with his money was named David Cannon. He was a white boy, a white man, a good old boy southerner. 68 years old, they sent him to prison. Sentenced him six months. They never proved that he stole a penny. Because see, James Brown didn't work with contracts and all this. He, you know, he put a million dollars into the guy's safe and said, just hold it for me. And the guy got him out of tax trouble and everything, and they put him in jail. And when they put him in jail, the only reason why he even agreed to go to jail was because he couldn't think, he thought his wife wouldn't be able to stand the strain. His wife tried to commit suicide twice because she was a proud Southern woman. These are Southern folks. And his son got murdered just before he went to jail. Two black kids broke into his son's house and killed him. Then his ex-wife was driving to the hospital that night to see her boy, and she died. She hit a telephone pole, and she died. And then the guy went to jail. And I think James Brown would be very disappointed to know that. And his other his manager, Buddy Dallas, was, his, his, career, his law career was basically just almost destroyed. Another woman named Adele Pope, a white woman who tried to enact the, the, what James Brown wanted, her, her law career was pr- practically destroyed. Listen, in South Carolina, only until about four or five years ago, there was only one law school. So they all went to the same law school. So they just, you know, they feed this case to one another and they just milk it. So his estate, which was once valued at between 100 and $150 million, at last, the, their last estimate of his estate value to the IRS was $4.7 million. That's why James Brown's life and in death is his, in many ways he suffered as much in death as he, did, uh, as he did in life. And thus ends my presentation, which brings a smile to everyone's face. I'm so happy to see you. Yeah, no. <laughs> If you have any questions, yes, in the back. If you shout the question, I'll repeat it. Yeah, yeah, that was his wife, second wife. Uh Uh-huh. Say that. Here, speak to the microphone. Deanna has a daughter. You said she lived with him and she was his wife. That is true. Um, I just wanted to know, have you ever met her? And if not, when you do meet her, please ask her to dance because she dances exactly like him. Which daughter is this? The the wife, the mother of the daughter, Deanna, who's from here. She was born in Cherry Hill. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she used to work for... uh, uh, Well, it's Verizon now, but it used to be AT&T. Our family knows her. I don't know Dee Dee Jenkins. I she read about da- her. She dances just like him. She can even stand on her tippy toes and hold it like a ballet dancer and just prance like him. Well, that's, well, gee. It's very beautiful. That just makes Try me feel all him. warm and gooey inside. Yeah. I, I, I'm <laughs> glad you told me that. I, okay. I wouldn't be able to sleep if I didn't know that. To okay. me. Well, look, I mean, um, I know that uh, his second wife lives here, and I know he has you know, some relatives all over the place. Um, and I, I'm sure he was not an easy person to, uh, to be married to. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in that regard, I, I'm sure she was an excellent wife to him. But yeah, we're well, talking about the man leaving $100 million to educate poor children. That's what we're talking yeah. about. I mean, I, I got on the radio yesterday with someone from Georgia. 
And they gave me this whole, you know, I know James Brown's daughter. And, you know, she talked about And then they played a clip from her. And she was saying how poor he was. And he wanted people to have. Yeah, I don't want to hear that, you know. I, we all know he was poor. Let's talk about what he left behind. I'm not interested in who he, I mean, thank you for your, this is not directed to you. But I professionally am not interested in who he was married to, other than the last wife, who was also married before she married him and never divorced her husband, but yet is somehow considered the wife by the courts in South Carolina. I'm not interested in anything about how poor he was. I just want to know, how can a guy leave $100 million behind to educate poor children in South Carolina and Georgia and why it's not being enacted? Why is it not happening? That's all I'm interested in. I mean, every, there's everything you want to learn about James Brown that's related to that and related to how he was, you can learn a lot of it here and the other books that you can buy. But um, that's really the $100 million question because we need that money for them children. And that's one reason why I took this book on. Now, I, granted, I made some money from it too. That's right. But I brought to this book something that other people who were trying to get this money did not. I brought track record and reputation. And I figure once, I, once you hop in the sack and take your clothes off, you might as well finish the damn job. So here we are. So I'm not interested if you knew Dee Dee and knew the kids and Deanna. I don't want to talk about them. If your questions pertain to the will and what needs to be done and how James Brown was shaped and, and why he was so crazy about money, those are appropriate. But I'm not interested in who he was married to other than the last wife. His last wife was a background singer. Her name was Tommy Ray Heine. And if you saw when he died... You saw Tommy Ray hiding on, on CNN with Larry King. She'd say, he'd say, you know, so, you know, what do you think? I mean, they won't let you in James Brown's house. And she said, my husband, you know, this is the thing. See, my husband and I, you know, she said, my husband, like enough times to make your head spin around. I mean, when someone's married and then they don't get divorced and they married somebody else. Well, in New York, we call that bigamy. I don't know what they call it down there, you know. And, but now they say he, she's his, you know, she was his wife. And so she's involved in lawsuits, and so are many, many other people. Yes, sir. I started to value um, James Brown a little bit more when I learned about how many, like, hip-hop artists had been sampling him. And recently, in a lot of cases, <clears throat> a lot of those uh, artists are paying back a lot of these older musicians. Like, how much of the state still collects from the, um, you know, musicians that are still sampling his music? Because, I mean, uh, that many songs, that much influence... You know, especially with a lot of electronic music that's like, you know, very pervasive today. He's, his estate still should be collecting in residual amounts to fund, you know, that, um, that um, philanthropic. Oh, his initiative. estate is collecting, I'm sure his estate is collecting tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands a month. But, um, but because the state of South Carolina administers his estate, um, no one really knows. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the hip hop artists love James Brown. They love what he is and they, they, they have great reverence for him. But it's, it's, it's impossible to determine how much money his estate is collecting because it's not, it's not. See, what happens when you die, your will goes to what's called a probate court. Well, his will never went to probate court. So since it was never sent to probate court, it's red meat for any attorney who wants to. Anybody can drop a lawsuit. I mean, uh, you know, anyone can drop a lawsuit. So it's impossible to, to determine. Yes, up here. Could James Brown read and write? Yes, he could. Oh, no, he couldn't, he couldn't read nor write music, no. Um, but let me just say that uh, that's a very, a very good question. James Brown played drums. He played organ. He played some guitar. Um, he couldn't read or write music, but um, he had an excellent musical memory. 
Like he could remember, and he also had an enormously gifted imagination for music. Like if you know the song Give Me Some More by James Brown, there's a trombone solo. Fred Wesley tells this story where James Brown says, I want you to go, and Fred said, when, he, when James Brown said that to him, he said to himself, man, this guy is crazy. He said, later on, these young jazz trombone players come up to a trombone players come up to they say, man, that thing you did on Give Me Some More, look, Thelonious Monk was a, was a terribly ungifted pianist. He was a terribly, technically, he was a terrible piano player. But he was a genius because he could execute his ideas. The musical imagination is something that you either have or you don't. So while James Brown couldn't read music, his ability to translate his ideas into musical excellence were that of a, of a musical genius. Does that answer you? Oh, how, he would just do the da-da-da method, you know. That's what, like, Anita Baker used to do that. She'd say, it goes like, I did a session with Anita Baker one time, and she said, well, I want you to play piano on the song. I said, well, Anita, I just played on the demo. I'm not really a piano player. I'm a saxophone player. She said, you wrote the song, didn't you? Yeah, I said, well, all right. She said, well, play. I said, what keys? She said, I don't know no keys. Just be. So I learned the song in every key. And then when I walked into the studio, Kenny Kirkland was sitting there. Was like, like the baddest jazz musician in the world. Like Wynton Marcellus, his piano player. was And I, I saw I said, Kenny, you know. You know but they, 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 they just go like this. It goes like this, you know. Boom, bop, boom, boom. Okay, now do that. And then you, you know. What, what James Brown did was he found people who could translate his ideas into music. And, but, you know, he, you hear on some of his songs, you'll hear him solo. Like, um, no, no, uh, not pop. No, it's, uh, you know, he's got so many songs. I'll remember it in a minute. Yes, yeah, organ solo. What song is that? How does it go? I, but you hear, he does, he does some nice organ solos, you know, he, and they're, they're real slick, you know, tight. You know, not too much, just a little. Because, listen, to play funk music, you know, when I was young, funk musicians, at least black funk music, they didn't like jazz. They're like, you know, no, jazz musicians didn't like funk because funk was too easy. You know, they like jazz because you have, you know, you're playing through different harmony changes and stuff like that. When you get these funk guys, some jazz, uh, jazz guys funk to play, they couldn't play it because funk requires space. You know, if you hear Miles, Miles had space in his music. Funk says, you know, boom, you have to know when to just throw in just a little bit. And you got to be good. And you have to do it consistently. And that's not so easy. It sounds easy. But it's not. If it was that easy, all this stuff you'd be hearing in these computers would be... That's why the music today is so lousy. Because they do what James Brown musicians did. But they do it with machines. So here's, you know, here's Hicko, you know. You know. You know, and you're like, you know, turn that off. <clears throat> but... He translated his ideas by just saying, it goes like this, doodle-doo-doo, you know, and then the musicians would make it happen. And then Pee Wee or Fred, and early, in the early years, Nat Jones, or in the, even the early years, Nate Floyd Scott, would put it together. Say, you know, it's a G, it's a G called G minor. And then the guy would, you know, until he... <clears throat> also, he had a bassist named Bernard Odom. And during his Chitlin circuit years, Bernard Odom was a light-skinned guy from Alabama. They say he would run his knife into you quicker. You know, you didn't mess with him. He was a rough man. But he, he was a jazz bassist who converted to electric. And he played on a lot of the early, the really early James Brown stuff, like Out of Sight. Um, everything before Say It Loud. 
And some of the stuff, um, like <clears throat> there's one song, not I Feel Good, but there's a song called uh, dun, 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 I Got the Feeling. Those of you who are musicians, try to count, tell me what, <clears throat> try to count the bars on I Got the Feeling. You'll never be able to do it because it's in 4-4, four, four, but it feels like it wants to go to 9-8. But that's Clyde Stubblefield. Boom. Listen to it. Just go home and listen to I Got the Feeling. And you, you'll tap your feet. And it's, it, but it's, it, it's not really for, it's something else. But what it is, I still, I still can't quite figure it out. I know it's 4-4. Four, four. What happens is Clyde drops something on the end of three, in the, like in the seventh bar. So it sounds like it's, but it falls back on the one. Yes, you had a question, sir, with the blue? After James Brown died, why, did they keep, why didn't they keep his band going? Well, it didn't have James Brown in it, first of all. And secondly, the musicians, the, the great musicians who created the sound, you know, had, had, had left or died out, you know, and didn't want to do it. They had evolved out of it, you know. Yes? <clears throat> and then I'll get to you over okay. there. The question is, what, because Al Sharpton was so close to James Brown and because he had this MSNBC show, how come he didn't? Well, I asked him that. And he just said, I'm not going to go at it with, with uh, the certain members of James Brown's family. He didn't want to go up against them. That was his, his response. And now, look, you, I'm not close friends with Al Sharpton. I mean, you know, I don't, you know, he didn't pay my bills. But he did contribute heavily in terms of showing the reader, because there's, a, there's a, this whole chapter in this book dedicated or showing Al Sharpton's relationship with James Brown. It has been said that if Al Sharpton stood on the steps of the courthouse in South Carolina and said, you know, I want my father, because he called James Brown his father, I want my father's estate the way he wanted it, that a lot of that would change. Well, I will say this. The fact that he cooperated with this book, because he knows what kind of... He remembers me from... He knows that I, I'm a straight-up-and-down reporter. I mean, I, mean, I you know, I, I just... Look, the hero of this book is a white man who went to jail and the white woman reporter who's 60-year-old grandmother, who's the only one who's followed the case. And so Al Sharpton knows what kind of person I am, and he sat down, he cooperated with this. Maybe that's, you know, maybe that's the extent of the contribution that he feels he can make. I don't know. But yes, there, does, there needs to be some kind of federal oversight or something for them to shake this loose. Otherwise, it's, I'm, I'm telling you, it's never going to happen. There's just too much money involved, and they, once, once they get that money, it's over. Once you take the money now, you, they ain't going to get it back from you. So the answer is, I don't know. I, he said he didn't want to go up against, you know, uh, James Brown's daughters. And that's his decision. And I, I don't want to get into it with James Brown's daughters and, you know, their relationship with their father. And that's their business. I, I have no, I have no uh, animosity towards them. Um, I just, my, my role is to show what it is show how that will and all that is part of the James Brown story and let the reader decide for themselves what is right and what is not. Okay, I'm sorry. This young oh, yes. excuse me. We'll do two more questions. Okay. Um, first of all, man, you're a funny guy, man. Your candor and your humor is really refreshing. I'm a Baltimorean, and I've done music in here for like 15, 20 some years in just publishing. And I remember as a boy, and I'm 58, so as a boy, watching this icon break the mold of what I thought a black man was supposed to be, I couldn't figure it out. He was doing this weird timing. It's the first time I started hearing strings on a record 
you know what I mean, where it led me to classical music. And to this day, I'm still trying to decipher some of the things that you shared that I couldn't figure out what it is. It's the timing, it's the musician, it's the refreshing way. When I watched his body, his body was doing on another count totally different than anyone I ever seen before. To this day, I have to leave Baltimore to go to England and go to other places to do music. But thanks to James and that image that he branded on my head and WEBB radio station and a whole lot of other things. And to come to hear you read from excerpts from your book and hear the detailed research you did, man. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. That's very nice of you. The last question here. Yes, sir. I want to recommend uh, the book before I finish it. I'm from Barnwell County, and uh, I, I know a little bit about it. I'm raised here in Baltimore, but they brought me up here when the bomb plant, as ah. they call it, was, uh, was to, made. Re to replace our lands. And you hit it, you hit it right there in those early cha uh, chapters, parts, when you said that South Carolina and the environment that produced James Brown is like a vapor. You said his life, his, the deception behind his life was like a vapor. That's the way it is. You'll hear it and you'll see it when you watch that Masters tournament this weekend. That's right. Yeah. You, you, you'll, you'll see that beauty and that grandiosity and that, uh, that exquisite history. Somebody hit something on the amen corner like a thousand years ago. And yet, there's only that statue, I think on Broad Street or yeah. Ninth or something, yeah. that little statue. A little tiny statue, yeah. Little tiny that statue for all that has been contributed by this band. How did you, how did you find that story? Well, I, you know, when I was in South Carolina, I felt like, I felt like the third monkey trying to get on Noah's Ark. You know, I was like, they said the table's clean. He, they, one of them's going to die. Just sit there for me. Because people didn't talk to me. But when I went to Barnwell County, and I went to this lady's, this, these two ladies named Mrs. Booker and her sister. I had a place called Mrs., Mrs. Booker's Place. It was a soul food spot. And I just went there and I started eating. That's when it really, well, first time I went to Barnwell County, and when I walked into the first diner, it was like an all-white diner. And I got nervous, man. There was a bunch of cops sitting there. And them cats, they just looked, watched me like this, look. I didn't say anything. I, you know, because you open your mouth down there, they know you're not from there. And they can tell by the way you dress, the way you walk. I don't care. They know you're not from there. So I, I saw a black guy sitting over in the corner. And I said to him, I said, excuse me, brother. You know, it was all brother then. You know? <laughs> when you need something, I said, excuse me, brother. Listen, um. You know, is that like a soul food spot or something? He looked at me like that. He said, go about a mile up the road, look on the left-hand side. All right. All right. And then I left, and he went like this. So I went, I'm not, I'm not kidding you, so I went up the road. I had a hard time finding this place. It looked like an old gas station, but it was closed up. But I saw a couple cars parked there, and I walked in there. First, I was hallucinating because I said, oh, my God, I walked in there. Look, everybody looked like James Brown. I was like, oh, <laughs> I, t I turned around, I started to turn around and leave, and then a guy came in with his two kids, and they looked like James Brown. I, like, oh. <laughs> but it, I got past that, and then I just ordered some food, and I started to eat. 
And I came back a couple times, started laughing. You know, I, you know, I like being around. I like cracking jokes and, you know, I, I just like having fun. So when they found out I was from New York, you know, and they, ah, yeah, you know, I was, ooh, wow, ooh, wow, ooh, you know, so they were, they were cool. And then, um, then one day, um, they said, we got this guy we want you to meet. He's like James Brown's third cut. Because everybody knew him or knew somebody who knew him. And they started telling stories about it. I never pulled my pen out. And I tell the young writers, like, when you go to interview somebody, you don't ever say, so um, when your wife died, did you really, you know? You just wait until they open their heart to you because you're asking them to trust you with their life. So I just came back. I, I would go and I'd come back and I did that for a couple weeks. Then the next time I came, they said, we got somebody we want you to meet. And there was a guy named Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis Thomas is his name. And he came in, big guy, real dark skin, handsome dude. And he walked in there and he sat down. I said, well, I ain't talking to him. They said, no, no, we're going to get you doing it. And they said, Joe, I want you to meet them. And so he came over and we chatted a little bit. And then he went back and he sat down. And then we started chatting some more. Um, and then I guess after the third, uh, you know, he came in. It was early and he came in and he said, um, he was sitting there eating. And uh, he said, so what you doing here? Like this was after like a second or third. Yeah, I didn't have any questions about nothing. I said, well, I'm writing a book about James, but I'm having a hard time, you know, court case and all that. And he had his fork in his hand. He held his fork like that while I was talking. And then he turned to me. He said, you better watch yourself out here, young man. I said, no, I'm just doing it. It's just a book. You know, I'm just coming and going. Just like he said, you watch yourself out here. And he just kept eating. And then he introduced me to somebody else and just somebody else. And gradually I got to know the people who really knew James Brown until they led me to one of his true cousins because he's got a lot of cousins there. And he I was on a back road. I describe it in the book. And this guy, in the middle of the night, laid out the whole business of the bomb factory. He said, well, there was the bomb factory. I said, what bomb factory? He said, man, you don't know nothing. And then he said, you know, and then he said, you know, he said, you know, James Braddy, his, his daddy and my And he just, you know, you know how people from down south say, well, he's my second cousin from the southern side because he's got a, he's part Morgan and he's part Freeman. Okay, now you got the Freeman part from this. And I, you know, I was trying to draw a family tree. Finally, he said, what college you say you go to? Because I couldn't. <laughs> but he worked it out. And then I started to learn the story of the, of the big bomb. And, you know, there was some heartbreaking stuff. Let me just say, I did the research on the Savannah River nuclear site. And there were some stories about it. It was like a story in Life magazine about a, a tender white teacher whose kids were crying. They're sitting on the porch watching their house being passed and going down the street. And this other guy's merchant about, you know, his wife was sitting at, at her grandfather's grave. She wasn't going to leave. And she just took all the tombstones off the grave so they wouldn't know which was which, so they wouldn't move her grandfather's body. But if there was one story about the 8,000 black sharecroppers who were moved from that land, if there was one story about them, I have not seen it. Even the people who are responsible for the research of that archaeological, the archaeological researchers say the story of the blacks that were moved by the bomb has never been told. And they would have reunions every year. They would go back, the old folks that remember, if I'm lying, I'm flying, they'd say, we're going to meet, and they'd talk about their homes, and sometimes they'd let them walk, they'd open the gate and let them walk down the streets they once lived in, that their fathers lived in. And there were many, many black businesses back then as well, all of them gone. That kind of injustice, you know, after you do a book like this, it takes a while for the, for the pain of it to ease out of your soul. But you understand that that's why I don't want to talk about, you know, his wives. I'm not interested in his wives. 
I'm interested in those 8,000 people. What happened to them? What happened to them is what happened to James Brown. They took everything. And then they blame you when the taxes, when the tax base leaves your community and the drugs take over and, you know, it, it's, they want their country back. They blame you for being a victim. And that's a hard thing to bear. You have to have God in your life or you just go crazy. I'm glad I took on this book and I ain't doing no more books like it. I'm going straight to fiction after this. This is it. All right, one more question and I really got to go. Yes, sir. Good. Wait, wait, take the mic. I apologize for those who can't hear me. So when the gentleman said about the young, the young people being able to understand better, my husband's over there, so, um, and we both, he's a social studies teacher, I'm a, well, phased out social studies, and I teach English. So we have a son that's now 19 that's at uh, Frostburg. So one of the things that I texted him right before I start, because I didn't want to be a distraction in any way, that, and, and, and I've, we've raised him in a way, he's Martin after Dr. King, to be able to appreciate all the wonderful things and everything you talked about, I just absolutely loved. So I can bring it back tomorrow for my class. So, and one of the things that I, that I appreciate about you giving your story is not the single story about James Brown. So that we don't want to ever go away with just the only single story about someone so that we only just see the pitiful part or this part and not the other part. So that's what I appreciated more, just like in, you know, things fall apart, that we don't just have one single look, that we'll be able to see people in a dynamic way. And so I appreciate that. And I think that we all have the responsibility to teach our children and teach or someone else's children the same thing, that it needs to be left to no one else but whoever. You see somebody and say, guess what? I told everybody today, James McBride is going to be at Pratt. I told him for a month. 
I said, you know, I said, because I'm going to go down there if I got to walk. But I was begging my husband. I said, I know you got to get to that job works fair, but I got to get down here because I have to see you. So I just want to tell you, thank you so much. And more than anything that you've written, it's even the color of water, knowing that that's what your mother told you is the color of God. I appreciated the forward that you did for Keith Michael Brown for Sacred Bond. Thank you. Oh, okay. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot.